it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. No people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. Happy Tuesday and welcome back to the Fenway Rundown Mass Live's Red Sox show. This is our first of three shows this week. I'm Chris Cotillo, Sean McAdam here. Today we're going to just kind of talk, as we often do, about some Red Sox storylines later in the week. A special guest and an exciting offering involving our Insider Text program that Sean will tell you about now. Yeah, Chris, we're having a lot of fun with our Red Sox Insider Text program. It's an opportunity to text myself, Chris, and Chris Smith about whatever's on your mind regarding the Red Sox. We'll try to keep you up to date throughout the hot stove season at the winter meetings in Nashville, right on through to spring training in Fort Myers and the start of the regular season. It's $4.99 a month. You get a 14-day trial period, and all you have to do to sign up is text JOIN to 617-751-6257, then simply click the link and subscribe today. We think you'll enjoy it and find it worthwhile. We're having fun interacting with a lot of you and would like to invite more of you to take part. And we will be using that later in the week for a mailbag episode. You know, we used to do those through Twitter. Now they're going to come exclusively from our insider text program. So a lot of um, interesting stuff coming on the pod this week as we move to uh, three times a week for the foreseeable future during the off season. Um, And that'll be uh, what we do. So, Sean, we'll start today with uh, it's rumor season and nothing's really happened on the free agent market. Nothing's happened on the trade market. They've been very, very slow start. We've heard the Red Sox link to some people. Nothing, you know, very seriously. We know they're going in on pitching. We know all of that. We know some of the guys who make sense. Today, Jeff Passan turning up the heat a little bit with this line in his winter mega preview the Dodgers, Rangers, and Boston Red Sox are all expected to be in the Otani sweepstakes, according to sources. And though the industry's overwhelming expectation is that he winds up with the Dodgers, that line of thinking is perhaps presumptive. Uh, and he goes on to mention the Cubs, the Giants, uh, the Blue Jays, the Mets, the Mariners, and the Angels as other possibilities for Otani here. 
and mentions that Otani, as we know, loves visiting Boston um, and has a fondness for Fenway Park. We've heard of the New Balance Connection. That's his, um, he has a sponsorship deal there. They're based here, all that type of stuff. So um, I think we've talked about it before. No surprise they're involved in some way, shape, or form. To see them kind of mentioned along with the Dodgers and Rangers as, um, you know, not necessarily put as the favorites there, but mentioned as involved is interesting to me. I'd still, you know, yesterday I was on foul territory with AJ Pruszynski and Scott Braun and those guys, and they asked me the percent chance. I said 5%. I think it goes up a little bit just because, you know, Passon's mentioning it, kind of gets some um, alarm bells going off. But just at this point, very early in the offseason, you know, qualifying offer decisions aren't even done yet as we record this. How do you assess, you know, where the Red Sox stand in regard to Shohei Otani? Chris, I've said all along that I wouldn't necessarily rule them out. It's going to sound like I'm hedging my bet here. And if it does, maybe that's not inaccurate. Um, I've said since late in the season that I wouldn't necessarily close the door on the Red Sox, at least kicking the tires on Shohei Otani. In a lot of ways, as I've noted, he checks a lot of boxes. He would certainly resurrect interest in this team. He would send ticket sales through the roof he'd be a huge boon to nesson ratings he would make the red sox must see tv and relevant again in the general everyday sports conversation in new england which at times let's face it they have not been in recent years uh there's that there's also the fact that fenway sports group fsg the conglomerate that owns the red sox or at least owns a majority interest in it is an international sports marketing company and they have designs on spreading that brand internationally they already own uh, liverpool fc as part of the premier league they have uh, stock car racing they're now getting involved in golf more they have a partnership with lebron james it's clear that uh, they own the pittsburgh penguins of the nhl it's clear that they want more that they want to expand their footprint and having a guy like Otani as part of their portfolio would go a long way towards spreading that brand on the negative uh, or the, the you know, sort of counter narrative is that we know that John Henry is very uh, iffy on giving out contracts to players in their thirties, particularly pitchers. And let's say doubly particularly for a guy who's already undergone two major elbow procedures. It's sort of weird that we don't know whether he had the bracing surgery or Tommy John surgery. In any event, he had an elbow surgery that's going to preclude him from pitching at all in 2024. But if you're making the kind of long-term investment it's going to require to get him, eight, nine, ten years, who knows? Uh, I don't think that necessarily eliminates him. But there's a lot of, uh, there are some negatives here, obviously. His age, uh, the fact that he probably can't continue to both hit and pitch past his mid-30s, just the strain on his body that we've already seen take its toll with two major elbow surgeries. So you can make a case either way. I'm going to go a little higher than your 5%. I might go in the 15% range, but I still consider it a significant long shot. Yeah, I mean... The way I look at it is, you know, just from a roster fit, and obviously if this guy's going to be willing to come here, you're probably going to, you know, need to shuffle things around. Like, their priority is pitching. I know he brings that to the table when he's healthy. 
right now he doesn't. And so to commit that much financial capital, you know, to what will be a non-pitcher in, in 2024 and who knows moving forward to me is not really aligned with the goals of what they're going to do. Also, in terms of a designated hitter, again, if this guy comes in, you're probably going to have to reshuffle everything and that's okay. And it's a good problem to have, but they kind of have too many DHs already. You know, you're going to need that spot for Devers down the line, probably Yoshida at some point, if not, you know, immediately talking about the Justin Turner question. So it's not the cleanest roster fit. And, you know, I think it's all well and good to talk about, you know, new balance and to talk about, you know, he likes playing at Fenway and all these factors and all these different things. How many times have we talked about all these factors just for the highest bidder to win out? You know, at the end of the day, the union pushes it, the players, the agents want it. Whoever bids the most amount of money gets these guys. Um, I don't completely rule out the Red Sox from doing it. I just feel like the Dodgers, the Mets, some of these other teams we hear involved, you know, definitely could be um, willing to go farther and willing to be more aggressive. And for that, you know, I still think it's a low chance. Um, You know, it doesn't mean the Red Sox aren't going to add. I think they're probably, you know, the favorites on some of these free agent starting pitchers. We don't know exactly who their priorities are. We've talked about the names before. Nola, Yamamoto, Snell. Montgomery maybe making a trade I think they're going to overhaul the roster and I think they're going to spend a lot of money this one to me it's just you know when you need you know as good as he is and he is more than one player when he's healthy you need more than one guy uh to to have a complete roster and I think um you know allocating the resources in a different way would be I think smarter and and just more logical for them right now yeah look in a lot of ways as you just noted this is does not make a lot of sense baseball wise and that seems a silly thing to say about the biggest star in the game and a guy Mm -hmm. who's probably going to win another mvp this at the end of this week and is unquestionably the biggest attraction in the game you know any team would find room for shohei otani it is more of a business and marketing thing but that stands to reason when you're talking about investing perhaps as much, if not more, than a half billion dollars in this guy. So the fact that Craig Breslow just got through saying he would prefer flexibility at the DH spot to be able to rotate different guys in and give Alex Cora the maneuverability to try different guys there, the fact that he can't pitch this year and pitching is their number one obvious need, to me, you you push all those things to the side and look at the big picture and what would he mean to the franchise. It's not about, well, you can't move uh, Masataka Yoshida to DH if you do this. That's not, to me, important in the big picture. It's what it would mean to transform, and let's be clear, he would transform the franchise and put it at another level in terms of its value, in terms of its appeal, in terms of ticket selling, in terms of TV ratings, Uh, The Red Sox would become the number one team in baseball in terms of people's interest. That's just a fact. Uh, So the fact that he's not going to be a pitcher, the fact that he's uh, blocking DH at bats for others, uh, to me, you dismiss that. And then you ask the big question, are you ready to commit that kind of money in that kind of term? Yeah. And that, I think, is the question they will be asking themselves along with, you know, probably five or six other teams. And there will be competition. You know, there's going to be a lot of teams involved here. We'll shift gears. You mentioned MVP. We'll talk about another award Um, right now. The Red Sox had a candidate and a contender for the American League Rookie of the Year this year in Tristan Casas. He finished third in the voting. Gunnar Henderson was the unanimous winner uh, from Baltimore. 
with all 30 first place votes. I was one of the 30 voters for that award as uh, we get to be in these jobs. Um, to me, I had Costas second. I had Bibby third. That might just be seeing the impact Costas had throughout the season. Um, you know, he was the really the best player in the Red Sox for a couple of months. He carried the offense, all that stuff. Now, Henderson, obviously the runaway favorite. Nobody has issues with that for what he contributed to that team. Um, just your reaction to the voting and Costas being third and, you know, kind of what it says. I think it's the, the highest Red Sox finish in that award in six or seven years, I believe, since Andrew Bennett attending. Right. You have to go back to 2017 where the Red Sox had a finalist for that award. It was indeed Andrew Benatendi and the last rookie of the year from the Red Sox. You go back 16 years to Dustin Pedroia in 2007. Look, it was obvious that Gunnar Henderson was going to win this award. It was a matter of where did Casas fit? Was it second or third? I think you can you know, we can debate all day what's more impressive, 10 wins and a sub-3 RA on the part of Bybee, or whether uh, Casas uh, and and his offensive production was more valuable. In the end, second and third isn't tremendously important. It was clear that Henderson was the guy to beat here, and he won it unanimously. In fact, uh, and I don't think anyone would argue with this, it was pretty easy to determine that both American and National League Rookie of the Year players were going to win overwhelmingly, if not unanimously. And it turns out they both did with Corbin Carroll with the Arizona Diamondbacks, um, also winning unanimously on the National League side. Um, so no real surprises there. And after that, you're just fighting over place and show in the finishes. But a, a strong rookie season for Tristan Casas, particularly when you look at how it started over the first two and a half months. Yeah, and you know, one that I think uh, will springboard him into you know, being a centerpiece of this lineup for years to come, and I think he was uh, one of the brighter spots for the Red Sox, as we've talked about. The Red Sox have some roster decisions to be made today. Uh, shortly after this podcast will go live, 6 p.m. on Tuesday is the deadline to protect some players who uh, are eligible for the Rule 5 draft. We've seen this every year. It's one of these deadlines that comes and kind of starts the baseball offseason. Um, the Red Sox have a few players, as our Chris Smith wrote yesterday, that need to be added to the 40-man roster. A lot of them are pitching prospects. Uh, Weichelman Gonzalez, Luis Perales, and Shane Drowen are the three kind of main pitching prospects that are likely to be added today. We've heard other names as potentials. Uh, Brainer Bonacci, uh, an interesting one, an, an infielder who is on the restricted list for violating um, the minor league joint domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse policy. We don't know the details of exactly what he did, but he was put on the restricted list during Arizona Fall League play. Um, and so he's kind of a wild card in some of this, not knowing the details. Chris Smith listed some other names here. Edinson Polino, 21-year-old shortstop. Alan Castro in the mix. Uh 25-year-old right-handed pitcher Ryan Fernandez, and then the utility man uh, Ryan Fitzgerald, catcher Steven Scott, and of course Noah Song, who was taken in the Rule 5 draft last year. Red Sox have 37 players on their 40-man roster. They'll probably have to DFA a couple guys if they want to go over, you know, adding three. Um, any expectations or expectations for news to come out of this, you know, greater than just your, you know, normal kind of chalky things that happen on this this time of year? 
No, I don't think so. I think the the only question, as you hinted at, is are there are they going to? They're currently at thirty seven on their forty man. That gives them room to add three players. I think the three guys you mentioned, Gonzalez, Perales, and Drone, are pretty much locks to be added. And then it's a matter of do they value any of the other guys we talked about, Polino, Castro, Scott. Uh, I can't see Fitzgerald being seriously considered here, um, you know, as a utility guy at AAA and a guy who's kind of gone through indie ball and the whole bit. That that doesn't seem like somebody He's also older than me. So, right. Not never a good sign. No, uh, I, I, I don't know if they're going to go. It, they're going to have to ask themselves, are there guys on the 40 man roster that we value less than any of the. Uh, potential ads beyond those three and that's the question that obviously we don't know I would think maybe one maybe two but I can't see it being any more than that so um, my guess is they add maybe four guys they DFA somebody off that list could be Gillespie could be a couple of other pitchers at the end of the roster Um, but I wouldn't expect any uh, earth-shattering news out of this today yeah there's a few guys on the the 40 man that you could see you know, getting axed, obviously. Gillespie, who I don't think ever pitched for the Red Sox, was a late-season waiver claim. I think they like Joe Jakes, and they like Mauricio Yovera, and they like Nick Robertson. Nick Yovera so is absolutely not going to get moved. They they really liked what they saw of him, other than a couple of bad outings. And Jakes as being a lefty when they don't have a lot of lefties in the bullpen beyond Brennan Ber- uh, Bernardino. So uh, Jakes did okay. Uh, maybe not a mainstay going forward, but a, not a guy you'd want to give up either. Ironically, they got him in the Rule Five in the AAA right. version of the Rule Five a year ago. Some other guys that are, I would guess, safe for now: Nick Robertson, Brandon Walter. Enough upside there. Zach Weiss is a guy who could be DFA'd. Oh. Journeyman, who's older. Um, Wyatt Mills. I know he's going through Tommy the Tommy John rehab right now. I think the bigger question, Sean, as we head toward Friday and the non-tender deadline, and this is all related because you could just make one of these moves early, uh, I, I believe, Luis Urias, the second baseman, um, I think he looks like a clear non-tender candidate at $4.7 million. Um, Reese McGuire, backup catcher, I think we've talked about that before. Seems like there's maybe a chance if they want to upgrade in that spot. So maybe one of those guys is the move today to kind of get ahead of Friday's moves. But um you know, this is all back into the 40 man stuff. They're going to have to make more moves as they add pieces later in the year and, and they just add overall talent to this group. Yeah. To me, Urias is a no brainer on the, on the non-tender list. Now, as we know, there's a lot of maneuvering in the final days that lead up to that deadline where a team will go to a player's agent and say, look, we're not going to risk having to pay you 4.7 million or maybe even a little bit more in an arbitration settlement. Um, so what do you say you take 2.5 with some incentives and you'll have a guaranteed contract for next year? If the agent or the player says no, then it makes it a little harder for them to work something out. Uh, but that could be going on as we speak. Uh, I know there's been speculation about Reese McGuire. Uh, and I know that as we've seen in the past, every dollar counts when you're doing the accounting. To me, $1.7 million is hardly... Uh, you know, out of range for a backup catcher who's got, you know, three years of service time in the big leagues. He's not Carlton Fisk. He's not Jason Veritek. He's not going to be a number one catcher, but he's not a bad number two guy to have. And I think particularly 
the fact that he's a left-handed bat to offset the right-handed Connor Wong. Um, you know, you're, you're paying this guy less than a million more than the minimum. I wouldn't think that would be so onerous that they'd have to move him off or non-tender him. Yeah, those are just the names. Obviously, there's a, a few other guys that are arbitration eligible that are going to be you know, back from Verdugo to Pavetta, some of these other guys that, uh, well, barring trades, of course, because that's very possible, especially when it comes to Verdugo. Um, but those are the two roster deadlines again today, Tuesday at 6, the 40-man protection deadline, and then Friday night at, I believe, 8 o'clock, and we'll obviously pot again before then, the non-tender deadline where uh, Urias seems to be the guy who is the most likely guy to get cut. Um, but, you know, there's there's surprises uh, this time of year in, in that regard always. Last thing we'll touch on, the coaching staff. Andrew Bailey seemed like an absolute lock to come to the Red Sox as of last week. Uh, I think there was a lot of writing on the wall about that. Craig Breslow and him are super close friends. Andrew Bailey wants to move to the East Coast. Everything seemed to be lining up. And... I guess we discounted the idea of the greatest bidding war ever for a pitching coach or a coach in the history of major league baseball. that's broken out for those who have not paid close attention. I, I do. You know what? I, I will take a little, uh, like uh, I'll go off the path here for a second. Red Sox fans on Twitter are acting like if they don't get this guy, that's it for the organization. You know, like they are absolutely beside themselves about it. I don't know, like, I, he has a good reputation. I mean, it's, I understand that they, they want him and everything, but, uh, like, I don't think any Red Sox fans were really aware of Andrew Bailey's pitching coach acumen as of, like, three weeks ago. I wasn't. I knew he was in San Francisco. I knew he used to pitch here and all that stuff. But um, this is now, like, according to Red Sox Twitter, which is a dark and dangerous place, uh, the most important thing the Red Sox have ever done. They have to get this guy. They have to outbid the Yankees. They have to go after and Let's not kid ourselves here. The fact that it's the Yankees in the running is playing oh, a of huge course. part of that. Right. Uh, so to, to recap, Andrew Bailey has a lot of interest and a lot of interest from teams. The Red Sox see a lot of um, the Orioles apparently have interest in him as the pitching coach. The Marlins apparently have interest in him as a pitching coach and, and another league there. And the Yankees, and perhaps the most important news, have interest in Andrew Bailey in an unorthodox way, a pitcher becoming Aaron Boone's bench coach next year. I don't know how these break down. Sean, I know you did some research yesterday on pitching coach salaries, which you could share with everybody uh, and how that went. But I think a bench coach gets paid more than a pitching coach. I would guess that that path toward managing, if that's what Andrew Bailey wants to do, uh, is probably clear there. So the Red Sox are going to really have to offer him, you know, a, a real package of probably, you know, money and power and all that type of stuff to lure him. First of all, how much does a pitching coach make, Sean? Well, according to Indeed, they make $19.40 an hour in the Boston market. So mm -hmm. um, they're going to have to come up a little bit from that to match the Yankees. Uh, look, the salary structure in the game is such that, as you hinted at, bench coaches traditionally make more than pitching coaches. There are a number, uh, maybe less than a handful of big name pitching coaches that really make a lot of money. Mike Maddox is one with the Texas Rangers. Brent Strom is another with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Um, but most of the time, those are not big deal contracts. Bench coaches traditionally make more. 
are. So right there, the Yankees have somewhat of an advantage. Now, this does not count against the luxury tax or the the, the artificial salary cap. You can pay your coaches as much or little as the market uh, allows. So there is no rule that says if the Yankees say, well, as a bench coach, we're going to pay you $450,000 that the Red Sox can't say, we'll pay you a half million a year to be our pitching coach because we really value you. Uh, you have a relationship with our chief baseball officer. Uh, you've done a good job with the Giants and Angels. You're highly valued. You pitched here. You know a little bit about what it's like to be a pitcher in this market. All those things, a good reputation, they can outbid them. There's nothing stopping them. But traditionally, the salary structure means the bench coach gets paid more money than the pitching coach. And as you noted, if Bailey, and we don't know this, but if Bailey harbors managerial aspirations, then certainly being the bench coach, which is in effect the assistant manager on a, on a coaching staff uh, and doing so in the New York market where you get a lot of visibility uh, that might appeal to him more. Uh, it's going to come down to personal appeal. Bailey knows Aaron Boone well um, and has a relationship with him. We believe that his relationship with Craig Breslow is probably stronger and deeper, but we can't say that for certain. And then it's going to come down to role and money and I would expect we'll probably have an answer to the story by the end of the week, one way or the other. Yeah, it's interesting. And clearly, you know, I think it's a good sign when a guy you're going after is being pursued by so many teams. I think the New York Post yesterday, Joel Sherman said the Marlins, the Orioles, the Yankees are all involved in trying to hire him as well as the Red Sox. And the White Sox wanted him too. He turned them down. So that's five teams going after this guy. Yep. And plus, you know, he probably, I, I know he wants to move closer to his Connecticut home, but like the Giants probably liked him enough to have an open door there for him to come back, even on a new staff. So right, and the White Sox training in Arizona probably worked against them. And right. being in the Midwest, that's not getting back to New England or the East Coast. So um, it, just it, the fact that six teams, you know, would like to have this guy on their coaching staff at least is, I think, shows that uh, it's not a slam dunk for the Red Sox, but they're pursuing a guy who's thought highly of in the game. The one last thing I'll add before we wrap for today is. The Red Sox are showing a little bit of a willingness behind the scenes to be creative when it comes to their coaching staff, too. Um, you know, I heard and have confirmed that if Joe Espada, who is uh, very uh, is close with Alex Cora, he was the Astros bench coach. I think he actually replaced Cora as the Astros bench coach in Houston after some time in New York. Um, he just took over for Dusty Baker as the manager. The thought throughout the industry was that Espada would leave Houston if he didn't get the managerial job. The Red Sox, along with some other big market teams, were interested in bringing Espada aboard. Uh, unclear exactly what that would look like. They have a bench coach in place who is one of Alex Cora's best friends and Ramon Vasquez. But we see all these titles getting thrown around, right? Associate manager and all these types of things that are happening. Um, the Red Sox like Espada enough to want to talk to him. Obviously, that's not going to happen now that he's a manager in Houston. But you know, just that idea of creativity where... You, know, you look at it, and the Red Sox have a third base coach job open. They have a pitching coach job open. And you know, I you know, theoretically, they could be there could be some you know movement where you know maybe if it takes bringing Andrew Bailey in as your bench coach, who knows? Maybe they do it. That's speculation, but like they're not necessarily tethered to just filling those openings with you know the, uh, the there could be some square peg round hole stuff here. Yeah, and you know we've also seen a willingness on the part of Alex Cora to move on from some personal relationships. He and Dave Bush had a good relationship. They weren't 
friendly uh, prior to working together, but I think they had a very solid relationship. Cora certainly respected Bush's work, but thought in the end that a change had to be made. He was close personal friends with Carlos Fabulous, and that didn't stop Fabulous from losing his job and ending up in Toronto. Um, so there's, you're right. I, I think that that they're they're approaching this with an open mind. Uh, there could be some unorthodox moves. Who's to say if Bailey ends up going elsewhere? Why not make Jason Baratek the pitching coach? He's been involved in a lot of that preparation and game planning strategy. Uh, it would not be a big leap to move into the pitching coach role. Maybe that's something that interests him. Um, as you noted, maybe Ramon Vasquez gets moved to the third base vacancy to allow for some new blood as a bench coach. We know it's not going to be Joe Espada, but maybe there's someone else they have their eyes on. Uh, it, it seems like a lot is up in the air, which is as it should be when you have finished last three of the last four seasons. Yeah, and I just think another sign that Craig Breslow truly does have full autonomy here and is working to really you know, make some legitimate changes behind the scenes. What exactly those end up being, we will have for you covered on MassLive.com. And as always, the Fenway Rundown podcast and for the final plug of the day, our Insider Text program. Yeah, so if you want to uh, be able to take part and send some questions along for an episode later in the week, uh, you need to be part of the Red Sox Insider Text Program, Fenway Rundown. It's easy to do. It gives you the ability to text all of us and keep up to date on all the stuff that's going on in the Red Sox in season, preseason, off season. All you need to do is text JOIN to 617 751 six two five seven then simply click on the link to join and subscribe it's 4.99 a month but it comes with a 14 day uh free trial period we were already getting a lot of people interacting with us we're having some fun with it and a reminder that later in the week we're unsure of when this is going to post but we have a commitment from a special guest we're going to be speaking to janet marie smith who is perhaps the preeminent baseball architect um, of the last uh, of this generation with her work beginning uh, at Camden Yards in Baltimore, the modernization of both Dodger Stadium and Fenway Park. We're going to be talking to her about her career, her thoughts on ballparks and where we're headed in the future. So we look forward to that couple of good episodes coming up. That one and one in which you can send your questions in via the Fenway Rundown Insider Text Program. Is that like a technologically advanced winer line? Is that basically what this is in overtime? But I hope not. <laughs> that has been the Fenway Rundown for today. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.